It is good to see you again. As Pastor Nathan said, it's been a couple of years since I've been here, but every time that I preach here, I feel like it is a second home. Um, And I think it's because I've probably preached here more than any other place outside of my home church. Um, So, and also because you guys are so loving and so so welcoming and warm. And and I know that every time we preach here, my wife even uh, commends you and, and talks about how well she feels received here. So, so thank you. Thank you for that. And, uh, and, uh, and also for new faces, there's a few of you that I've never seen before. So, so uh, hello and, and welcome. And I pray that this morning would be a blessing to you. Um, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we give you praise that we are here today, that we can gather freely um, in this country. We know that this is not afforded in many parts of the world. In many parts of the world, it is illegal, and many Christians' lives are on the line if they go public with their faith. And so we're thankful, Lord, we don't want to take this for granted that we can gather freely, corporately to worship you, to sing sing the gospel, to hear the gospel preached, to pray the gospel, and to see the implications of the gospel by the way that we treat one another. Father, thank you for that. Father, I pray for Millwood that you would continue to bless uh, this church, Father, Um, bless the leadership, bless the the congregation, Lord, we pray that the gospel would still continue to go forth, that they would just continue in perseverance um, no matter what happens. Father, we pray just for their steadfastness. We pray that they would see gospel fruit from their labors. Father, we pray that you would provide for them every resource that they need to continue to do ministry here in this north part of Austin. And Father, we just, we, I just ask that you would just continue to be glorified, that Christ would be lifted up in this church. And now, Lord, even as I prepare to speak your word, Father, it is humbling, Lord, that a flawed vessel such as myself would be able to present your word. But Father, I ask by your spirit that you would be with me. I pray that Christ would be exalted, and I pray that, that the people would be encouraged, Lord. I pray this word would land on every heart, including me, Father. Father, use your word to exalt your son, to encourage your people for your glory alone. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. So as the text was read, we will be in 1 John chapter 3. But before I begin looking at the text... We live in an age where information is literally at our fingertips, 24 hours a day. Our smartphones are typically our access points for almost anything and everything, including daily news. In addition to mainstream media, almost anyone has the ability to start a podcast or a news site and report issues or their take on issues going on in the world. And so with so much access to information, sometimes we get confused about what's true and what's not true, right? This particular channel will emphasize things this way, and this particular channel will emphasize things this way, and this independent podcaster will say this, and this this podcaster might say that. And so sometimes we just don't know what to believe. And so what's happened is there's there's been an emergence and a rise of what's called fact-checking. You familiar with that term, fact-checking? So we hear all these competing narratives on, on vaccines and justice issues, political issues, and it makes us wonder, 
what's really true? So we start fact-checking. But are we checking a true site? It's almost a circle that we can't get out of. But we want to verify whether the information that we're hearing is correct and trustworthy. That's the definition of fact-checking. Now, I recall a time, and my wife may giggle here, I recall a time when I told her that a certain Hollywood figure had passed away. Yeah, she's giggling. (laughs) And in this belief, she fact-checked me or that narrative, and it turns out that it was wrong. That person was still alive. But if someone were to fact check our profession of being Christians, what evidence could they find to support that claim? If we were to fact check ourselves or examine ourselves to see if we're in the, in the faith, what are some criteria that we should look for to assure ourselves? In 1 John, John is writing to believers, likely in Ephesus and surrounding cities, to assure them of their profession of their faith. In fact, at the very end of, or toward the end of this epistle, um, in chapter 5, verse 13, John says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. I'll say that again. John wrote this epistle saying in 5.13, I write these things to you to who believe, who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. That's the whole point of this letter. He wants to assure these believers that they are indeed Christians. You see, there have been some false teachers that have infiltrated some of the churches in the area, and their teaching is believed to have been an early form of Gnosticism, which basically taught that matter was evil, The incarnation of Christ wasn't true, and salvation was based on knowledge alone and not in the atoning work of Jesus Christ. This distortion of Christianity drew some professing Christians away and caused some of the remaining Christians to doubt whether or not they were truly Christians. Throughout the letter, John juxtaposes characteristics of what distinguishes a true believer from these false believers and the false teaching that they were uh, being hit with. And he does this by three tests. He does this through the obedience test, the doctrinal test, and the love test. So if you read 1 John, you will see that John Again and again, it just comes back up again and again. He wants to reassure these people, the the believers that he's writing to, that, hey, measure your profession of faith by these three things. Are you abiding in Christ by obeying his commands? Do you believe in the correct Jesus, the Jesus that is fully God and fully man? And do you love other believers? Those were the three tests that John put before the people to help them see whether or not they were Christians, to give them assurance. Now, there are many more, there's more criteria that is involved in, in that, but those were the three areas that John kept coming back to in his epistle. And so this morning, our text focuses on the love test. John helps us to see that our love displayed practically and sacrificially toward other believers 
is a key mark that assures us and verifies the authenticity of our faith. I'll say that again. This is the big idea of this morning's sermon. John helps us to understand and to see that our love displayed practically and sacrificially toward other believers is a key mark that assures us and verifies the authenticity of our faith. And if you're a note taker, I have three subpoints. The first is the call to love one another in verse 11. The second point this morning will be what love is not, looking at verses 12 through 15. And then the third point is what love is and does, verses 16 through 18. Very simple outline. I wasn't clever enough to think about some fancy subtitles. So look with me in verse, chapter 3, verse 11. 1 John chapter 3, verse 11, the call to love one another. For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. I'll stop right there. This will be my shortest point, but I think it's very important. So John says here that this is a message that they've heard before. This was nothing new. John is going to tell them, love, we should love one another. This is not new to these people. But as I was doing some studying, when I, when I see this, this word beginning here, for this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, there are some different takes on what this beginning is. And I won't spend too much time here, but some people think the beginning is referring to God's relationship with Israel because we see back in Leviticus that after God gives a lot of these uh, social and moral ethical commands, he says, love your brother, love your neighbor, for I am the Lord, right? It was kind of a summation of what God had been instructing them in Leviticus 19.18. The second interpretation of beginning, which I think this is what John is getting at, is that he's talking about the beginning of their faith when they first became Christians. So it seems that an integral part of their discipleship early on emphasized loving the brothers or loving one another. How many of you, upon becoming a Christian, were taught early on in your Christian walk to love other believers and the importance of that? And how many of us, upon becoming a Christian, experienced that love from other believers? I mean, think about that. I think that's one of the things that first got me when I didn't have all my doctrines sorted out. I just knew that I was a sinner, that I had just come to Jesus, and I was kind of new on this walk. And, and, but what, one thing that really struck me was as I began to, um, as I began to get more involved with the, the church that I started attending at the time, I was just quite taken aback by the love that they had for me. These people didn't know me personally. And they looked different than I did, than I do, right? They weren't African-American, not all of them, right? So I'm thinking there's cultural differences. There, were, there was a lot of differences, and that's fine, and that's nothing wrong with that. I mean, that's what a church should be, you know, if people coming from the area, there should be a multi-ethnic experience there. But I was amazed by the love that they had for me. And here's, and here's how that love, one of the first ways that that love demonstrated itself is that every year there would be an annual men's retreat, right? So I remember thinking in my head as a new believer, what is, what is a men's retreat? What, what do we do? What, what do we do here? Like, why do we have to do this? 
And so some brothers kind of schooled me and told me what a men's retreat was. We're going to, you know, go away and kind of study the word together and grow as brothers in the faith. There'll be teaching sessions and activities and, you know, we'll be bunking out in the cabin and all these types of things. So I was like, okay, this sounds fun, but I can't afford to go. I mean, I was fresh out of college. I wasn't making any money. But for some reason, these brothers wanted me there. And so they said, you know what, we'll take care of you. Again, they don't know me. They paid my whole ride, if you will. They paid my, 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 my basically scholarship to me, right? They took care of all of my fees. And then on top of that, a couple of brothers started car, they carpool and say, hey, you can ride with us. And you don't have to give us any gas money, there or back. I, again, I didn't know these brothers well. They didn't know me well, but they loved me well. I wonder if some of you have had that same experience. You see, the reason that we are called to love one another is because the call to love is grounded in the very nature of who God is. Consider Jesus' words in John 17, 24, concerning the love the Father had for him before the foundation of the world. The text says, Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me because you have loved me before the foundation of the world. There's, an, there's a Trinitarian love that's always existed. Love is the very nature of who God is. Consider the essence of the law, which was alluded to earlier in the service. Jesus talks about this in Matthew twenty-two thirty-seven through 38. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all of your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments, on these two commandments is depend, depends all the law and the prophets. So the very word that the Lord gave as an essence of the community, that the life that they were supposed to live, the law was about love. It, that emerged from who God was. And consider Psalm 136, which starts by saying, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. Right. I'll say it again. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. Yes. Now, if you look at Psalm 136, every other line declares this. So we think it was a song that was to be sung in the congregation in the temple, right? But think about there, every other line called attention to the fact that the Lord was a God of steadfast love that endured forever. In case Israel, in case you forget, one of my major characteristics is I'm a God of steadfast love. You be a people like that. And what's the point of this love? Why, why should we love other believers? To glorify God. As Christians, as we love each other by the power of the Spirit, we display to a small degree of what God's love looks like before the world. And we also bear witness to the world of Jesus' authority and his mission. We'll talk more about that later. 
So, so the call of love is one of great significance, and it, as it has its foundation in the very nature of God. But to help us get a, a better picture of love, John contrasts what love is and what love is not. So look with me at verses 12 through 15. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. I'll stop there for now. As I was studying this text and thinking about the account of Cain and Abel, and if you want to turn to Genesis chapter 4, feel free to do that. Genesis chapter 4, 1 through 8. As John is, is, again, contrasting what love is and what love isn't, by contrast, he's showing us that Cain is not an example of love, but of hate. But there's something going on with Cain that I don't think that is, that, that it's definitely not stated, but it's seen. Look with me at Genesis 4, 1 through 8. Now, Adam knew Eve, his wife, And she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again, she bore his brother Abel. Now, Abel was a keeper of the sheep and Cain a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering. But for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. I'll stop there. I'm convinced that Cain's first problem was the fact that he hated God. That might be a a bit strong, considering that he, the text says he brought an offering to the Lord. But when we look a little bit closer, it seems that, and obviously the text tells us that the Lord did not have regard for Cain's offering. Hebrews 11.4 tells us that by faith, Abel offered a more acceptable sacrifice to the Lord than Cain. So it's likely that Cain's sacrifice was unacceptable because he did not offer it in faith, which probably resulted in the lack of a true sacrifice to himself. So in other words, Cain had a low view of God, which called him to respond with his offering Kind of a a menial offering, could be. But but look at what the text does tell us. I mean, let's just look at what the text says here. Verse 3, in the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, and Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. So it seems that Abel had such a high view of the Lord He had a reverence for God that he brought the first fruits of his flock and the fat portions. There was a great cost to Abel because he had a high view of the Lord. Cain says he just bought an offering. Nothing really describes the type of offering, but we do know, we see here, God did not accept it. So we can infer, again, from the Hebrews verse that Cain, you offered something not in faith, which affected the type of offering you gave. 
Now, I'm not going to talk about money here, so don't, don't, get, don't worry. But I think that's what's going on. Cain had a low view of God. He did not have a reverence for the Lord, which is why his, his offering was rejected. Look down with me at 5 through 7 in Genesis 4. I'll reread this. But for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, why are you angry and why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at your door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. So I believe that Cain had a hatred of God, number one, because the type of offering that he brought. But, but what else do we see here? What's going on in this text that I just read? The Lord graciously comes to him and says, I'll give you another chance. If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? And then he gives him a warning. So here's mercy on one hand. I'll give you a chance. Do what's right. But if you don't, sin is crouching at your door. Cain has a choice. God is gracious and God's warning him. Cain never responds to the Lord. The Lord speaks at the end of verse 7, and the next time Cain speaks, it's to his brother. He does not verbally respond to the Lord. Cain, I believe he hated God. And that hatred for God turns toward it turns into jealousy and, and hatred and envy for his own brother because his brother was righteous. Cain's jealousy of Abel led him to hate him, which led to murder. So instead of heeding the word of the Lord and repenting, he grew to hate his brother for his own righteousness. You see, instead of seeing Abel as an example to imitate, he saw him as a rival to eliminate. This is why John said that Abel, I'm sorry, Cain was of the evil one. In John 8, 44, speaking to those who sought to kill him, Jesus said, you are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in truth. Cain's hatred and persecution of his brother is a picture of the devil and the world's persecution of Christ and the church. You see, to hate Christians is satanic in nature. And it's evidence of being unregenerate and condemned. Look back with me in 1 John chapter 3, verse 15. Verse 15 says, Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. To hate Christians is satanic in nature, and, the, and it's also evidence of being unregenerate and condemned. Now, this is not saying that people who commit murder can never be forgiven of sin. That's, we have examples in the Bible, Moses, David, right? But what this is talking about is if there is an unrepentant, characteristic anger, hatred for your brother, in the faith, 
you probably are not a believer. And there's no eternal life that's not abiding you. You're abiding in death. As we continue to follow Christ faithfully, the world will continue to prove who they really are. Look at verse 13. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. I'll just stop there. So just as the way that Cain hated his brother Abel for his righteousness, the world will continue to hate Christians as we continue to live a life publicly before the Lord as followers of Jesus. If we're seeking to be faithful to the Lord, the world will hate us. That's just the reality of it. In John 15, 18 through 19, Jesus said to his disciples, If the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. You see, as Jesus was preparing his disciples for his death, he made it very clear that they would be hated by the world. Why? Because they're not of the world. They're kingdoms in conflict. There's the kingdom of God's beloved son, and there's the kingdom of darkness, right? They are not controlled by the prince of the power of the air, the devil. You see, their mission and our mission is to advance the kingdom of God and to exalt Jesus by gospel proclamation, discipleship, and displaying a righteous witness in society. But how can that happen if there is hate for other brothers and sisters in the faith? It can't happen. You see, we need to remember who the real enemy is, and it's not other Christians. How credible does Christ, the gospel, and the church look if professing Christians are exemplifying hate for one another instead of love, especially on Twitter and other forms of social media? It is very possible that someone here today may be dealing with hatred toward another brother or sister in the faith. And I would let Jesus' words from Matthew chapter 5, 21 and 22 serve as a sobering warning. He says, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who was angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. Jesus is very clear about the result of unrepentant anger and hatred among professing believers. It's uncharacteristic of a Christian to love, to, to hate other Christians, which may prove, if that, is, if that is what we're exhibiting, it proves that we're not of God, that we're not regenerate. Now, we may not physically murder someone, though anger can definitely lead to that, as Cain did to Abel. But through unchecked anger and hatred, we can murder people's reputation by gossip and slander. That should not be in the church. Let this not be said of the church. Let it be said and seen that we love one another which is the grounds of assurance of our salvation. Look at verse 14 in 1 John chapter, chapter 3. 
It says, we know that we are passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. If you really want to know, and, I, and I, I hear, John really wants to encourage the church in their walk. Verify that you're a Christian. He's not trying to assail their conscience. He's trying to encourage them. Hey, this is how you can have assurance that you know that you're a Christian. And one test, like I've said, is do you love other Christians? That's a way that you can assure yourself that you're a believer, is that you love other believers. Think about it. The same blood that, sh- that was shed for you was shed for that person. The same spirit that resides in you resides in them. How can there be hatred in that situation? Now, I know we're fallen and we're not perfect, and we'll talk about that. But, but think about the reality of what I'm saying. It's incomprehensible comprehensible for us to remain in unrepentant hatred toward another genuine believer who professed the same gospel we do. John is very clear. I'll read this verse again. (laughs) We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. And then look with me at chapter 4, verse 7 and 8. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. How much clearer can John be? There really is no middle ground. It's either you love people or you don't. You're saved or you're not. John John purposely writes this way. He writes kind of in a black and white, polarized way just to help people understand there's no, there's no sitting on the fence about this issue. If hatred characterizes you, for other, if hatred for other believers characterizes you, I'm not saying that believers don't have issues to work through. I'm not saying there are never disagreements. But if hatred characterizes us, We better examine ourselves to see if we're in the faith. And just to be clear, John is not saying that loving other people is the means of our salvation. But rather, loving the brothers is the evidence that we've been saved by the grace of God in Christ. And whoever doesn't love is not, they're not Christ's people, they're not Christ's possession. They abide in death. 1 John 4.20, again, because John comes to this topic time and time again. 1 John 4.20, he says, if anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. So John is like, in case y'all didn't get it, the four other times I've talked about it, I'm going to say it again. And I know it's tough to hear. But we should have no assurance that we're Christians if we abide in hatred for other Christians. You see, hate for Christians does not constitute genuine faith. But we see in verses 16 through 18 that love for the brothers verifies our faith. Look with me at... 1 John chapter 3, 16 through 18. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. 
But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. You see, this is the epitome of what love is. It's really a person. John is making it very obvious. By this we know love that he laid down his life for us. Now, he does not even have to mention Jesus' name because they already know, right? But this is talking about Jesus. John points to Christ as the epitome of love, and the demonstration of that love is sacrificial in nature. You see, Cain took his brother's life, but Jesus laid down his life for the brothers and the sisters. See, again, he's comparing and contrasting. Jesus' whole life, from his incarnation to his priestly ministry right now at the right hand of the Father, is a demonstration of love. Jesus said of himself in Mark 10.45, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus' incarnation was, was meant for his death as an acceptable sacrifice for our sins so that we can be forgiven and reconciled to God and to one another as Christians. That's good news. Jesus humbled himself to the point of death and even death on a cross to forgive sinners who put him there. See, there's no greater love than that. If you're here today, if you're listening online and you're not a Christian, I hope you consider this good news. Scripture says we are all born in sin. In fact, the sin of Cain's father, Adam, has affected all of humanity and has separated us from God. And because of our sin, we, like Cain, are born at enmity with God and with God's people. That's who we come into this world as, sinners rebelling against a holy God and his people. This is why Christ came, to forgive us of our hatred of God and all our sins and to grant us eternal life upon faith and repentance. And after Christ was crucified, he rose from the grave three days later and later ascended into heaven, where he now sits at the right hand of the Father as the high priest of his people. See, the Bible also tells us that Christ will come again to judge the living and the dead. He will either bring eternal, he will bring eternal salvation to some or eternal condemnation to those who spurn his name. So I would appeal to you, if you do not know Christ as your Savior, turn from your sin and turn to Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. The one that you're running from is the one you should run to. You see, but this gospel is not just for Christians. For non-Christians, it's for Christians too. We need the gospel daily. We need to remind ourselves of this good news and its implications to persevere and grow in holiness by the power of the Spirit. You see, it's not just for salvation, it's for sanctification. Jesus not only saves us from eternal death, but he is the source of our very life and enables us to lay down our lives for one another. That's love. And so what does this love look like more tangibly? Since we're not going to lay down our lives sacrificially for the atoning work that Jesus did because 
there is no need for another sacrifice. His sacrifice is once and for all perfect, right? So what does it mean for us to lay down our lives for the brothers? He's referring to our love being sacrificial for one another or sacrificial toward one another. It should cost us something. It's not merely some emotional sentiment. This is why he says at the, at the, end, of the, of, at the end of our section here, little children, let us not love in word or talk. It's easy to say, oh, I love you. I'll pray for you, brother. I'll pray for you, sister. That's easy. And that's not wrong. It's not wrong, so, so don't hear me. I'm not saying don't say that. Say it and do it, right? When you say you're going to pray for people, pray for people. When you say you love them, mean it. But there's something else that John is getting at, and our text reveals this. You see, love seeks the good of others just as Christ sought our highest good, which is our redemption. So we should seek the good of others, which happens in a variety of ways. You see, John gives us some basic, very basic guidelines. This is not a comprehensive way, but very basic ways that we can show that we love the brothers. Look at verse 17 and 18. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? In 18, little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. Right? So basically, John's just saying, hey, one way that you can love people and it proves that you're a Christian is if you meet people's practical needs. I think sometimes we can become so preoccupied with maintaining pristine or consistent doctrine, and, and not that we shouldn't. We should be certain about what we believe in. But we forget how incredibly practical Christianity is. I mean, what does it matter that we can, that we can voice and defend our eschatology positions, but we don't love the person sitting next to us? Well, I'm a millennial, I'm a pre-mill, I'm post-mill. And you get all into all these, the, the nuances of the doctrine and parsing the verses. And, but if you can't love the person next to you or the, the brother or sister you may be talking to about these things, what good is it? Christianity is not just about saving souls. There's a a holistic concern that God expects us to have now that demonstrates our concern for the body and the soul. And this love is to be shown irrespective, irrespective of our brothers, uh, sisters' ethnicities, political convictions, social convictions, gender, socioeconomic statuses. Those things should not matter. We are called to love the brothers and the sisters, to love one another. Our brothers and sisters are image bearers of God with inherent dignity and worth, and we are family because of Christ. As I said earlier, the same blood that was shed for me was shed for you. I can't hate you. You can't hate me if we're in Christ. I remember during what some have termed the great snowpocalypse or snowmageddon, hearing of Christians opening their homes 
uh, for meals and showers and heat and beds to other believers in need who experienced the loss of electricity, water, or food. You see, that's love. Now, if some kind of theological conversation happened, that's great. But I mean, think about it. We all experienced it. We were, my wife and I, we thought, oh, we're going to get through this. We got, a, you know, we got three or four blankets on and two hoodies and three pairs of socks, and we still cold, right? I'm, I'm like, praise God that he came on sooner than later. But, but had we needed to go somewhere, we had people's houses that we could go to. We were, we were, we were afforded the opportunity to bless a family who just needed some showers. Come on over. And I'm telling you, the minute that after all five of them bathed, our hot water was gone. So praise God. We got a chance to serve that family. But that's what love is. That's what love does. You just meet practical needs. Very basic. I mean, it also may look like buying groceries for a brother or sister or a couple struggling to make ends meet and not looking to be paid back, obviously. It may, love may look like loaning or giving a car to a brother or a sister in need so they, can, so they can go to work. It may look like assisting someone with their mortgage or their rent so, so they don't get thrown out on the street. You see, if our hearts are cold to the genuine needs around us within our believing community, how does that reflect the love of God? How does it show that God is at work within us. It doesn't. Is the power of the gospel so remarkably shown by our sacrificial acts of love for one another that it astounds the unbelieving culture around us? Have you ever considered how sacrificial acts of love witnessed by the world sets the stage to communicate the gospel to them? When they look and see why are they so nice to one another? I can't stand my such and such, my brother, my cousin. Whatever. But these people, they're of different ethnicities, different eth um, socioeconomic backgrounds, high education, low education, but they're loving each other. Why? Let me tell you about Jesus. See, when we, when we, when we live this out before the world, it comes into conflict with their way of thinking and their way of living, and it's strange to them. So they may ask you why. They may say this, why are you so strange? <laughs> oh, I can tell you why. But that's a great question. Why are you so weird? You just love everybody. Get on my nerves. Oh, okay. God bless you, you know. <laughs> no, we, but for real, we should be known for our love for one another. That's the way, that's one way to be a city on a hill. Listen to Jesus again from John's gospel, 13, chapter 13, verses 34 and 35. Jesus says, as he's, again, preparing to go to the cross, a new commandment I give to you, talking to his disciples, that you love one another. So really, John is just, John in this first John is just really bringing things in from his conversation with Jesus during his earthly ministry, right? A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. Here it is. 
By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Our visible and sacrificial acts of love for one another verifies to the watching world that we truly belong to Jesus. So it not only assures us, even the world can say, they're Jesus freaks. They love Jesus because look how they love each other. There's something different. And this assures us. This is the mark, one of the marks that John says, you can know that you are a genuine Christian because, I, because look how you love the brothers. You see, based on Jesus' words, I'm convinced the greatest apologetic for the church is ethical, not intellectual. Now, I know I've said a lot, hopefully more encouraging than discouraging. But what if you failed to love Jesus, to love as Jesus commands? Well, the truth is we all have failed. But the good news is that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And we can pray to the Lord to enable us to grow in our love for him and for our brothers and our sisters in the faith. And as I close, I'll just offer one little tidbit of how that can begin to happen. First of all, as I said, pray. Ask the Lord to enlarge in your heart for your brothers and sisters in the faith. They're on the same journey. We're all on the same journey together. We're both marching towards Zion, the new Jerusalem, leaving behind this world, right? We're on the same team. But one of the ways we can begin to grow in our love for the saints is simply to spend time with one another. So what, what does that involve? Each of you have to sacrifice your schedules to come together. Coffee, dinner, maybe moms and dads and play dates or whatever, whatever it is. Get to know one another. I know that some of us live, especially the way Austin is in every major city, some of us live very far apart, some of us may live closer together. There's an advantage of living closer together, but take the time to get to know people. Especially get to know people that are different than you, different ethnicities, different cultures, different stages of life. Some of our seasoned saints need to hang out with some of our younger saints. You know, when I was a new believer, I was 23, I was single, and I made a point not to join the college and career ministry at the church that I was attending. I didn't want to hang around a bunch of people like me. I already know how you think. I hang around a bunch of 22 and 23-year-olds, I'm, I'm trying to see something different. So I joined a small group, a multi-ethnic small group. There were interracial marriages, Cute kids running around everywhere. So there were, I joined, I got connected with people unlike me, both in my ethnicity and in my stage of life and age. There were some older people there. And I was better for it because some of their experiences helped me understand some things. They loved on me weekly as we met for small group. 
And I would encourage us all to do that. And I know there's life group ministries here. There's life group ministries at my church. I lead a life group where I attend church. But that's one way we can actually grow in our love for one another is just to start hanging out with one another. Cast presuppositions aside. Put your wants aside. Love, serve, get to know one another. Genuine love demonstrated by sacrificial and tangible acts for other believers is a mark that we're truly Christians. And may we continually grow in this love for one another, for our growth, and for the glory of God. Let's pray. Father, we are so thankful that your word instructs us how to live not only for our sanctification, but for our joy, for the joy of others, and for your glory. Father, as recipients of such love, Lord, help us by your spirit to pour out that love toward one another. Lord, help us to examine our hearts to see where we may need to repent for being not as charitable or not as loving as we are to be. Help us, Lord, for the glory of your name. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.